You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Do you remember the first time you tried a plant-based meat product? Unless you are an early adopter and were super hyped for it, or you somehow managed to avoid an onslaught of advertising and marketing, I'm going to guess it happened in either the second half of 2019 or the first half of 2020. How do I know that? Well, because it's becoming very clear that that period was the high watermark for Beyond and Impossible and all the rest of them. Introducing the Impossible Whopper with a patty made from plants, no beef. Introducing Beyond Fried Chicken, only at KFC. It looks like scrumptious chicken, it tastes like scrumptious chicken, but it's not chicken, it's made of plants. What am I buying? Beyond Meat Jerky, it's made from plants. So many major fast food chains announced new menu items, so many new brands entered the sector. And why wouldn't they? This was the future. Plant-based meat was going to save the world, revolutionize the industry, and maybe even make us healthier. And three years later? Well, if you love this stuff, don't shoot the messenger. But it's pretty clear that plant-based meat is a niche market at best and a passing fad at worst. And you would be hard-pressed to find your local fast food franchise still serving up those items they once breathlessly announced. So what happened? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dina Schenker covers the food industry for Bloomberg. She has been following the rise and fall of plant-based meat products. Hi, Dina. Hi there. Can you take us back to like the beginning of the whole Beyond Meat thing? How big a deal was this? What was Beyond Meat supposed to do? So Beyond Meat was founded in 2009 by Ethan Brown with this, at the time, wild idea that he was going to make meat from plants. He was going to pull the different components from plants that uh, he could then reassemble into uh, the architecture of meat. So just like meat has, you know, fats and uh, proteins, so so do plants. And he could just reassemble them in the, in the right order so that uh, when you bite into uh, whatever concoction he made, you don't think this is pea protein and canola oil. You think this is a burger. This is beef. Uh, his first product was chicken. He made it with uh, technology that he licensed from professors from a couple of universities. And pretty quickly, he started uh, raising money. He started going on the like conference circuit, giving these big talks about how he was going to, you know, his, his products were going to help solve uh, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, climate change, natural resource depletion, animal welfare. His product would be the car and animal meat would be the horse-drawn carriage. He made these kinds of uh, big statements pretty regularly. They were all part of his normal shtick. Hmm. And he actually ended up uh, killing the chicken product. Sorry, I don't mean killing. I mean, you know, uh, discontinuing the, the right. chicken product. It was all made from plants. Then started focusing on beef. His company went public in 2019. Um, and at the time, it was the most successful IPO since the financial crisis. So it was a really big deal. And um, suddenly it started to look like, hey, 
maybe this could happen. Maybe plants could replace meat. I remember that time, um, mostly because I was working in a newsroom that was attached to a radio station. And all the time, various new companies would be sending us tasters of like, hey, we've got Beyond Meat pepperoni on our pizza. Or would you like to try this Beyond Meat breakfast sandwich? Yeah. How big at that time? did this sector get? Because there's Beyond Meat. They weren't the only ones in this. Like, who got into it once it became clear there was a lot of hype around it? Right. So at the same time that Beyond, that Ethan Brown was building his company, uh, Pat Brown, no relation, just the same last name um, with the same idea. Let's solve climate change and let's do it by replacing meat with plants. Pat did it a different way. He himself is a scientist. And so he discovered that the key to meat's meatiness is this molecule called heme. And there's heme in everything, but there's the most of it in red meat. And so he uh, started making his own heme, except with a gen- he used a genetically modified yeast and soy to make what they then called their magic ingredient. So as uh, Ethan was building his uh, company, Pat was building his too. And they were really kind of neck at neck and the the big names in the space. And then when Beyond went public, suddenly it was like, okay, so Beyond is public. They're huge. Um, Impossible is poised to like be the biggest competitor to Beyond. There were often comparisons to like the Coke and Pepsi wars. And at the same time, there were a ton of other companies and brands um, rushing into the space. You had like the major uh, food companies like Tyson and Gardein from ConAgra. You had uh, smaller companies rushing into the space. All these small companies that were suddenly able to raise a ton of venture capital because everyone thought this could be a Beyond Meat. And it quickly just like, boomed. Like everywhere, suddenly it was like, everyone wanted to put one of these things on their menu. People were, they were everywhere in the supermarkets. I still feel like I I go to the supermarket and there's always a a new product that I haven't tried. Um, And it was really a gold rush into fake meat. At that time, when it was everywhere and when there are so many different products and it looked like there was a gold rush, do we know how many people were really interested in actually trying and eating this kind of meat? Like at the time in 2019, uh, when venture capital is pouring in, what do we know about the public's attitude towards this? So we've, we have a few different indicators that people really did want to try this. For example, I spoke to the CEO of Bear Burger, who was one of the earliest adopters. They put impossible burgers on their menus like really early um, before almost anyone else. They weren't the first, but they were in um, the first cohort, I would say, of of the higher end burger chains. And the CEO described the initial demand as astronomical. When Burger King launched the Impossible Whopper in Restaurant Brands International's earnings calls, they talked about how it was bringing in new consumers. There was people that, you know, never went to Burger King or hadn't been to Burger King in a very, very long time were going to Burger King to try the Impossible Whopper. Listen, I was one of them. (laughs) I wanted to try it too. So, you know, I think that there was definitely a high level of interest um, when these things were first getting off the ground. And now, as we talk about it in early 2023, you know, sort of four years later, a whole pandemic later, for whatever that's worth, um, what do we know about how much of the standard meat market, impossible or beyond, or just plant-based meat in general, has comprised? Like, has it lived up to those expectations of everybody rushing to try it? So, 
it has not lived up to the expectations. It was a really big deal that these products were being shelved in the fresh category. They had been in the frozen, you know, there had been sort of uh, vegetarian options in the frozen section for so long. Now they were coming to the fresh category right next to the real thing. Those sales are down 14% um, in the 52 weeks ending in early December. And this was after a huge surge in the early pandemic where you had all these people that were, you know, stuck at home and they, a lot of them had extra money to spend and they were willing to spend a little extra to try something new that they also thought was healthy. Now, what we've seen is a lot of people come to this category once and don't come back. There's a number of reasons for that, including that, um, remember we talked about how there were all those companies that raised money and went to market? Well, a lot of those companies maybe went to market too soon. Their products weren't very good. Um, in fact, if you do go to the supermarket and decide to try these products, like uh, I can tell you from my own personal experience, sometimes you bring them home and you're like, hey, that's pretty good. And a lot of time you bring them home and I've I've spit out a lot of product um, in my work reporting on this beat. Never a good sign for a food product. No, that's right. I mean, listen, for a long time, I was trying to try new products regularly, um, but there were so many bad ones. It's really surprising. Not that there aren't bad products in the rest of the supermarket, but when I eat like a subpar pizza bagel, I don't spit it out. I just don't take another, I just swallow it and don't take another bite, you know? And what we see now is, you know, I mentioned the Bear Burger astronomical demand and that demand has fallen a lot. Uh, The latest number is for 2022, um, the number of impossible burgers was only 4% of their burgers and sandwiches total. Um, It was 6% in 2021 and then 4% in 2022. And so, not not a lot of customers, restaurants break out their sales information that clearly. But you know, we also spoke to Fat Brands, which carries the Impossible Burgers, and they were they were psyched about their Impossible Burger because they're selling a million Impossible Burgers a year, which is good business for Impossible, right? But they're they're also seeing a climb in their beef sales, so not as good as beef. And Dunkin', which was carrying the uh, Beyond Breakfast sausage sandwich, which was a huge deal for Beyond, they've since dropped it from the vast majority of their menus. And Beyond has tested products with a lot of uh, the big chains, um, with McDonald's, with KFC, with Taco Bell, and with Pizza Hut, and none of them are carrying um, a permanent menu item in the United States from Beyond Meat. Why didn't they stick around? And I guess what I'm getting at is, forget about the little guys that maybe went to market too soon and and you end up spitting them out. But Impossible and Beyond are big brands. I think most people who are into these things would agree that they're kind of the cream of the crop. There were a lot of people willing to try them, but they didn't go back. Why not? Well, the first thing is that these products are still more expensive than the real than the real thing. So when you're asking someone to buy this, you're asking them to spend more money. That's the first challenge. Then these CEOs and founders, they will say it right out loud that their product hasn't matched on taste yet. So you're asking somebody now to spend more money for something that doesn't taste as good. But question is, is it healthier? Am I, am I eating something that's healthy and good for me? And if that's the case, then maybe I'll, maybe I'll make those other compromises. But it's just, that was how these 
products, especially Beyond Meat. That was how these products were initially sold. And there really is no consensus that these are healthier foods. There is consensus that they're not healthy. The question is, are they healthier? And Okay, I want to stop. I want to stop you there because I really want to get into this. This is the part of your reporting that really surprised me because I have to say I had assumed even though I didn't really eat them beyond the, you know, try it out, novel experience, et cetera, et cetera. I had totally assumed that these were basically health foods. They were plant-based. They were super good for me. Is that true? And, and if it's not, what's in them? Why are they not healthy? If you try to rewind um, in terms of the public sentiment around food to before these products were really on the scene, the big health advice was to avoid processed foods, especially ultra-processed foods. Ultra-processed foods are foods that are made from essentially other processed ingredients, like extracts and things like that from other foods. So that was a common piece of advice, and people probably heard it in the news. They heard it from their doctors. These are the foods that are the highest in sodium and sugar and all the kinds of things that we're trying to not eat too much of. And these foods are ultra-processed foods. So the question is, is, well, is that, are they still better than meat? And like I said, that's really, that's a really hard question to answer. And, you know, there's been very little uh, in terms of studies done on this. Um, there's been one published study that I'm aware of that looked at plant-based meats compared to regular meats. Um, it was a study that was funded by Beyond Meat run by Christopher Gardner, Dr. Christopher Gardner at Stanford. And even though it was funded by Beyond Meat, I should say Dr. Christopher Gardner is widely respected and, and well-regarded. So just because it was funded by the company, we don't have to discount it. And basically that study, which was very small, found uh, that there were some potential benefits in weight and cholesterol. But even Dr. Gardner says that the results have yet to be replicated. So, you know, Dina Shanker is not an, a health expert. Sure. I would not put it on myself to tell somebody these are healthier, et cetera. What I would say is that there is no consensus that these are healthier than meat. One doctor I spoke with called the fast food version of these products, at worst, a lateral move. So it's not going to hurt you any more than, than that Whopper would. Another doctor I said said, listen, these aren't health foods. Nobody should think they're health foods. But yeah, get the Impossible Whopper instead of the Whopper. It, it is a little bit better. So like nobody's saying, oh, go out there and eat these things every day. There's no amount of... Um, you know, changes in formulation that is going to change the fact that these are ultra-processed foods. Okay, so here's the thing then. What you're telling me is that they are more expensive, they don't taste as good, and at best, they are kind of a lateral move uh, from traditional meat. If all these things are the case, why did we expect this sector to be so huge? Why did we expect this to replace beef? It's funny, I'm, I'm sort of shaking my head because I'm like, why did we? <laughs> but there's the, what the common uh, analogy was always to the plant-based dairy category. By this, we're talking about like almond milk, oat milk stuff, soy milk. That's right. And so, you know, there are different estimates in terms of the comparison of, of the markets. But the one that we cite in our story is one that Ethan Brown used in a pitch deck to his investors that said that... Uh, just like alt milk companies could be 13% of the $16.1 billion dairy milk category, so too could these um, fake meat companies. And when he said that, he also said that that was the floor for his 
category. Um, But that comparison doesn't stand up for two really important reasons. One, a lot of people came to the the plant-based milk category because they had to, because they are lactose intolerant. That's why the category has existed for so long, um, long before there was a public consciousness about the relationship between dairy and climate change, right? It was because people just couldn't digest regular dairy milk, but still wanted to eat something with their cereal. The second really big flaw with that comparison is that for a lot of people, putting oat milk in their coffee is no big deal. It is like a small ingredient that goes with the larger beverage. It's like using margarine instead of butter. Right. I mean, it's it's no big deal, right? Because you're not, that's not what, you're not biting into it. It's not like the main course. So those are two big reasons why this was not a good comparison as much as plenty of people wanted to believe that it was. So what happens now then? How far have these companies fallen? And, and what comes next for them? Like what's their conceivable future. I don't know exactly how this works in in this kind of marketplace, but it kind of seems like you had your shot. You know, you kind of are what you are by now. Listen, I think the category will continue to exist. The idea of like sort of um, vegetarian versions of animal-based products did not begin with these companies. Sure. Plenty of people who are vegetarian and vegan know like this department very well. I mean, that's the reason the frozen department always had this kind of thing in stock. And plenty of vegans and vegetarians still like these products. And meat eaters kind of come in and out at much lower frequency, but vegans and vegetarians eat a lot more per capita. And that is something that I was told by multiple market researchers um, and other people in in the space. Um, So I think that we will continue to see more products. I think that it it will stay niche though, just like it is now. And there are about um, five to 7% of this country is vegan and vegetarian. That's a real consumer base. It's a very small consumer base relative to the rest of the population, but there's still money to be made. I think that's the reason that, you know, Impossible is still selling well in supermarkets. It's because there are a lot of people who are excited to have new products that meet their needs. I don't think that we're going to see this category take a real bite out of the meat industry. Well, last question then. Um, If that has settled into sort of the vegetarian option, What's the next great hope for replacing beef? I have seen that recently uh, lab-grown cellular meat is approved and sold in Korea now. Would that be a real game changer? Or am I going to have you back on the podcast in four years asking you what the heck happened to cellular meat? <laughs> well, I think the um, the outlook for cellular meat is dimmer, actually, than plant-based because the challenges are so much bigger. Um, the technology um, has not reached a point where they can make these products at commercial scale. They're making very small amounts. And the products that they are making at this very small scale are still extremely expensive to make. They are extremely energy intensive to make. It's not a sure shot that they'll be more climate friendly. At this point, the only thing that is sort of better for the environment in terms of having a smaller um, footprint is cellular beef. Cellular chicken is is expected to have a larger environmental footprint than standard uh, chicken. This is just like when I thought plant-based meat was healthy. That's that's right. That's right. And also the, the product just hasn't reached the point of being identical to real meat. And the amount of money 
the plant-based companies raised, that pales in comparison to what the cellular companies are going to need to raise. I mean, I I interviewed an investor in cellular and he was telling me that like people need to run these million dollar experiments in cellular meat just so that they can fail, so that they can learn for them for a million dollars. So I I wouldn't place any bets on on cellular meat replacing uh, the meat industry either. Okay, so what are you watching for in the meat and non-meat, meat-like things sector this year? I'll tell you, I'm I'm not looking for anything that uh, is going to depend on consumers changing their behaviors. I think we have to look further up the food chain if we want to see reductions in uh, the amount of meat that is eaten or the environmental impact of the meat that is produced or both. I just think that depending on consumers to change behaviors is a losing game. You know, one thing I, I talk about sometimes is how I've been covering food for like, I don't know, 10 years or so. And um, there was never, ever, ever a moment like the pandemic created where suddenly people were doing all the things that like uh, environmentalists and public health advocates, et cetera, had been imploring them to do. They were cooking at home, which is we all know is healthier than eating at restaurants. And they were wasting less because people didn't want to go back to supermarkets if they could avoid it. And one of the other things that they were doing was they were eating plant-based meat because they thought it was interesting and exciting and maybe it was healthier, et cetera. And so from my understanding, people are still cooking at elevated levels compared to what they were doing pre-pandemic. I, I couldn't tell you how they're doing on waste. I, I, I've asked around. Nobody has nobody has any data on that. But we know that they're, they're eating less plant-based meat. So I think that there was this tremendous opportunity to sort of change consumer behavior and that, that opportunity passed. And I, I don't know when the next one like that is going to come. Gina, thank you so much for walking us through this. It's fascinating. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Dina Schenker of Bloomberg. That was the big story. I asked you a question at the beginning of this episode. I can tell you exactly when I first tried these products. It was when the local pizza place here in Ontario, Pizza Pizza, sent the newsroom gigantic boxes of pizza with plant-based pepperoni. And you know what? They were fine. Like, if you hadn't have told me, I would have noticed something was different, but not necessarily in a worse way. However, I prefer regular pepperoni. I mean, come on. Don't hate me for that. It's just tastier. That's literally my entire take on plant-based meat products. I tried them and I liked the meat better. And sure appears from listening to Dina that I'm not alone. Oh, well. Now I get to try cellular meat sometime, maybe, hopefully, anyway. You can talk to us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can email us, hello, at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. And you can call us and leave us a message and get mad at me for dissing the plant-based meat product that you enjoy, which, great for you, by calling 416-935-5935. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk Monday.